I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. Well, hey, welcome back to the King and Culture Podcast. It's great to have you with us. Um, Seth, good to see you this morning, my friend. It's morning at the time of our recording. I don't right. Know, I don't know if people know day. when we're... This, this is uh, King and Culture, not live. As opposed to the event that we want to invite you all to, uh, King Culture Live, September 19th. That's a Monday night. We'd love to have you guys join us for that. We now have special guests. Yeah, the, this is cool. The Mike Griffith Trio, the band. Yeah, Mike Griffith Trio, one of the hottest bands in the Southeast Valley. You can find them all over the place on the weekends. And they're going to be doing some live music for us at the event. Yeah, it remains to be seen how much live music, but yeah. there will be some live music. There will be music. some live music, a little bit of live music. So, yeah, 7 p.m. at Redemption Gateway, Monday, September 19th. Would love to have you join us. The topic is going to be self-love, and I don't know much more than that. That's just the topic that Seth said that we're talking about. So we'll talk about that, and then we will answer questions. And by popular demand, you know, we had said that we were not going to record the questions, uh, the Q&A part, but by popular demand, we've had overwhelming requests overwhelming single digits requests <laughs> to have the q a recorded to have the q a recorded so we'll do that and uh you know we'll see what we uh how we repurpose that in the future but yeah it should be a fun time and i'm looking forward to seeing what in the world happens with this thing so hopefully some folks will join us but today seth what are we talking about today today we're talking about generational patterns genetics and epigenetics those root words are all the same. Epigenetics. Epigenetics. We're going to learn something, folks. I have never heard that word before. So, Yeah, so thinking about generation, G-E-N-E, gene, generation, genes, genetics, epigenetics. Uh, yeah, I know about genes. <laughs> I know about genetics. Yeah, yeah. So the things that all factor into uh, bloodlines and okay. family, family products, systems, environments, situations, all wow. connected. Well, this is kind of a big theme in the Bible. I mean, there's lots of description of bloodlines and ancestors and fathers and you know the son of this and he beget him and yeah, it's know, a so bigger forth. it's a bigger theme than I am interested in naturally that is for sure <laughs> I feel like if you read some of the gospels or even parts of the Old Testament it's like and he begat this person and this person begat that person and this person begat that person I remember reading it especially like in high school and college and even sometimes now and I'm like yada 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 get to the plot because this is just Person, beginning person, beginning person, descendant of, descendant of, descendant of, son of, son of, son of, son of. Yeah, that's kind of where your Bible reading plan just runs into a brick wall of like, do I have to do this? It's where you kind of tempted to go, you know, all the Bible is equally inspired, but it's not all equally interesting. And you have to deal with some of that. And, And so I think one of the questions we have to ask is like, well, why do the authors of Scripture, namely God, but also the human authors, include all this generational stuff? Like, Well, and it's interesting in light of just our current culture where especially you know there's such a um and we've talked about it such a growth of therapy and psychology and um, a lot of the good aspects of that and a lot of that is really exploring family systems and it's exploring you know your family of origin and how you grew up and different wounds from when you were a child and so this this is kind of an interesting place where some of the obscure parts maybe of the bible connect with a really prominent dynamic in our world yeah one of the things i've noticed too is a lot of my friends like close friends who have uh, like family histories that they're not in tune with either because they were adopted or they were, uh, uh, 
you know, just isolated or separated or from ever like past, maybe it was traumatic, maybe it was not traumatic, but for a reason, they're not immediately connected to their biological family. Uh, I mean, the whole 23andMe thing, you know, trying to find out your right. DNA, your ancestry. Have you done that? I have not done it, no. Would you? I would, uh, but also. Do you want to? I mean, my sister did it, and I feel like, how different can our thing be? You know, so. <laughs> and So she didn't be like, hey, everybody's got to do this. No. I, part of it, I'm like, I. I imagine if she said everyone's got to do this, you would say I'm not going to do this. Yeah, well, the, at least, like, there's I have some friends who, who are doing and I'm like, you know what's going to happen is somehow the insurance company are going to hold this data, and they're going to find a reason to charge you more. And then the government's going to get it. Yeah, that's my my Coming for it. It's like, oh, you were predisposed to the gene for that cancer? Yeah, canceled on the insurance. And so there's a piece of me that mm. I don't want to really, we didn't plan to get into that, but I. <laughs> yeah, I haven't done it either. I, my mom. And I don't it. know. I, I haven't really even thought much about it. I, yeah, it's supposed my, to be interesting, but. And my mom and dad both did it, and they're not disconnected from their family ancestry. And I think they kind of just did it as like a fun thing. And you know, my mom's ninety nine point nine Ashkenazi Jew, which we all were like, "Ba bum bum surprise!" <laughs> you know, it was yeah. about the least mind blowing thing. And my dad was about ten percent of every kind of white there is. You know, so <laughs> okay. You know, it's, it's like when you go to pick out the color for your walls. Sure. And there's like all the different types of whites. Yeah. Like it's all white. You know, that, yeah. was, that was my dad's, you know, so okay. Irish, Italian, German. Other, we're yeah. not all at one point white, Seth, but that's a different conversation. Yeah. You know, well, if it burns, <laughs> so if, you got, if you got to wear the SPF 50, then yeah. there you go. <laughs> there so you go. That's the, that's whatever the version of white my dad is. So they all do that stuff, but there's. Yeah. So that's another interesting connection just in this conversation is all the DNA side and the ancestry type thing. Yeah, and psychologists have had this huge debate for the last, you know, 100 years or more. I mean, it goes, psychologists had the debate last 100 years. Philosophers had the debate for the last multiple thousands of years. It's the nature-nurture debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much influence, how much of who we are is just inborn, like biological determinism would be like the inborn, like your genes pretty much determine mm-hmm. who you are versus nature. How much is your, how, uh, how much of it is socialization, Man, if you want an interesting film related to that, did you ever see the movie Three Identical Strangers? No. Oh, man. Have you heard about it? Not even heard about it. So it's essentially, I mean, I'll spoil a tiny bit, but it's these three identical brothers who are all all adopted to three different families. Oh, wow. And it was essentially a big experiment. Wow. About nature nurture. So what do they decide? Well, you gotta watch the movie. Is the movie Nature Nurture? It's amazing. It's an incredible movie. Uh, the the my experience of it was you totally felt one way, and then they made you totally feel another way, and you went, "Oh gosh, I don't know if I can actually pull apart Nature Nurture," and it kind of left you with a lot of that that tension. Yeah, so it's a wild ride. Well, that's great. The, I think the <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Big well, gulps. <laughs> big gulps. Huh? Yeah. We could do our film review podcast later on. Actually, it wouldn't be a f- good podcast. Anyway, so be- nature, nurture, all the philosophers, blah, blah, blah. I'm talking films here, <laughs> yeah. Seth. Movies, films. This one was a film. It yeah. was not a movie. Is it ever seen a movie and a film, just how interesting it is? Uh, it's how pretentious I want to be <laughs> yeah. when I talk about it. It's how much the budget was when they were making their explosions. That's a movie. There's a blow thing blowing up. So anyway, nature, nurture, the whole question of how much our genes determine who we are versus how much do they have influence, or is it all nature? You know, there's like the biological determinism, which says it was all genes, but then you have other like uh, 
behavioralists, which would kind of see humans as a blank slate. Mm-hmm. Um, and even within theology, you have um, some of this, you have like a hyper-Calvinism and determinism that says like everything that you are is what you're supposed to be. Uh, and then you also have kind of what would be called like a, uh, like a hyper-Arminianism or even what could be considered this uh, blank slate view of human nature that yeah. you're not really born good or bad, but you kind of just uh, are are uh, born into this called Pelagianism. There's a called heresy in the fourth century, like this idea that humans are basically good or neutral. Tabula rasa? Is yeah, that? Yeah, tabula rasa means blank slate. Yeah. Hey! Yeah, so that's... I even got that through public school. Public school, baby. Uh, and the the question is how much there's different schools of thought in that. And I think that anybody who's not totally dumb sees the both sure. in there. Mm-hmm. Right? To try to make it one or the other is pretty foolish. Totally. That's part of the reason why like that movie you just talked about the film. Sorry. The, the film you talked about <laughs> was, uh, it so, was a documentary by the way. Oh, it wasn't even, it was a, a real, yeah. Like a real thing that happened. Wow. Now I'm interested. So anyway, the, uh, the, the whole question of like how how and the reason that like psychologists love twin studies is because that's like the only real hmm. yeah sure data you get on uh, how much of it sociology how much of it is uh, uh, biology or or genetics. Speaking of twins, by the way, I saw an article that blew my mind the other day. This <laughs> I'm on all kinds of rabbit trails today, Seth, but. Hey, your iced coffee is about two thirds gone. That's probably <laughs> why. <laughs> anyway, this uh, pair of twin brothers married a pair of twin sisters. All right, and they had they both had baby boys within like three months of each other, and so now these boys are considered genetic brothers, even though they're cousins because oh, they share the same DNA, and they're like they got this weird Instagram account, and they all dress the same, and it looks super weird, but. But I was also like, I'm for sure saving this article for a preaching illustration someday. Am, I'm sure all those people are healthily differentiated and have their own identities. And not at all. So let's talk about their family systems. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about what's going on there. So anyway, got me thinking, all, all this recent stuff, 23andMe, people separated from their parents, separated from them, not separated. Concerned about genetics, uh, appre- appropriately so. And one of the questions we get all the time has to do with this idea of like, on generational patterns or generational curses or generational. So a curse, I think you, we think of sometimes curses being like we Harry Potter informs that too much. Hmm. Like uh, someone put a curse on our family, you know, and they said yeah. these words and you get, now there's a curse on me. Uh, whereas biblically speaking, curse has to do more with uh, like consequence or punishment, right? It's not necessarily like you're hexed or there's like voodoo on you. But when God blesses people, uh, he he get like blessing and cursing like the basic roots of those words are blessing is adding cursing is subtracting mm. right and so there's just this like pragmatic reality to generational curses or generational systems of brokenness mm. you know that a father that withholds affection is likely to have a son who withholds affection from his son like there's yeah that and so in a sense that's a curse like you are walking outside of God's design and you experience the consequences of walking outside of God's design. So it's not like, Oh no, was my grandfather cursed and now that's why I can't get a job. Yeah. I think of it kind of like you said in the sort of magical way, but also in the, like, is God punishing me way? Like did God, you know, God was so ticked off at what they did that it's now I'm having to pay the price for it also. 
Yeah, it's a good question. And so here's like, I would say like the first time this really shows up in scripture, it comes from Exodus chapter 20. It says, um, you shall not make for yourself the carved image or any likeness of thing that's in heaven above or the earth that's beneath or that's in the water of the earth. You shall not bow down or serve them. So let's make no idols. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children into the third and fourth generation. So the question is, what is visiting? Uh, what does it mean to uh, visit yeah. the iniquity or to keep present? Yeah, in particular, like, so wait a minute. Am I somehow being experiencing the consequences or worse, the punishment for my great-grandfather's sin? Yeah. Yeah, and so, like, in the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, this word here, it says the basic meaning here is disputed of the word itself, which is... The word visited? Yeah, pakad, yeah. It's disputed, but possible suggestions are present, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it means to miss or to worry about, like concerned about the iniquity of the fathers to be carried on the third generation. Another way you could think about that um, has to do with remembering or paying attention to or examining or keeping. And so basically you have God saying, don't make idols. And there's a bit of, it's not really a threat here. I visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children, but it's a bit of a promise or a, an expression of concern, uh, the iniquity of the fathers will be on the children, meaning like the sins of the fathers pass on the kids. I remember hearing just a pastor talk one time when I was in college at a college retreat, and he said, you know, the easiest thing to pass on your kids is your genes and your sin. Yeah, It's just contagious. Sure. We're social creatures and made in the image of a relational social God, and so that's contagious. And so that whole question of generational patterns, how do you break them? What does it take to do it? And and it's got me thinking, I'm, so by the time this podcast comes out, I will have been speaking at a, at a camp this coming weekend. Mm-hmm. And I'm, so it's a Young Life family camp. And I've just been praying a ton for this group. It's mostly folks in their 30s and 40s with kids, or like the people at this okay. this family camp. So people kind of like you. Yeah, people like me. And, and like me. Yes, we are like And probably like a lot of people listening. Uh-huh. And I've been thinking about what the first task of parenting is. And, like, if you have to start nowhere, start somewhere. And I've been thinking about how there's really two big pieces to, like, this first task. I think the first one is inventory of how you're parented. Hmm, that's like interesting. I think paying attention, okay, what was modeled for me? What parenting did I experience? Was it absent? Was it affectionate? Was it warm? Yeah. Was it harsh? Was it controlling? Was it uh, lenient? Was it, uh, was there... Was it reciprocal? Was it mutual? Was it humanizing, dehumanizing? Like there's all these Have you read John Tyson's book, The Intentional Father? Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, he kind of starts there as well, doesn't he? Isn't that part of the early process of that book is, yeah, is take some in inventory and yeah. your family and where you came from? And I believe he might have started there. I read like four or five parenting books at the same time. Okay. <laughs> For some reason in my mind. like, But I remember it stood out to me because I feel like a lot of parenting books just blow right by that. Yeah. They don't consider it. And it made me go, huh, yeah, I've never actually really thought about that that as a as a conscious exercise for, you know, moving into parenting. It's just so much of, like, what we do, our sense of normal. Like, I had to read, they made us read a bunch of parenting books in seminary, uh, which is way before I was a parent. Okay. But the big idea was, like, you know, pastoring is more like parenting than anything else. Mm. Um, and it's mostly, like, you know, there's, like, the... Pater familias, the father of the family, with the with the children of the family. That's like the main metaphor we get in the New Testament for shepherding. 
besides shepherding, which is a metaphor anyway, but the, the, the whole inventory piece. And for some reason, Olivia being born, my second kid kind of triggered me thinking a lot more about how I was parented and seeing myself as a dad. Whereas having a son still kind of felt like I have a marriage and we have a kid. Hmm. Whereas, um, especially like, cause Jay was like, you know, one or one and a half and there's not really any parenting. There's just keeping alive. Yeah. You know, it's just a very demanding <laughs> house pet or house cat, you know, like <laughs> at, at, at that first phase, you know, <laughs> until they're this coming from Mr. Human dignity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In, in terms of like the pragmatic <laughs> yeah, responsibility, yeah, I get what you're saying. Sure. whereas, you know, Jay turns one and a half two, and he's talking, there's more like, Communicate. Now he's a person. Yeah. Now, now he's now you. Now no, but he, now your experience of him is just way different. Now killing him would be murder. Before it would not have been. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> so, so. Anyway, so, but the the whole like just responsibility of interacting mm-hmm. and noticing myself being triggered more mm-hmm. by you know defiance or by uh, loud play and having Olivia born at the same time, I feel like it went from being like. I have a marriage and we have a kid to, I have a family. We yeah. Have a fam- mm, like interesting. It felt like, it felt like we have a family now, not married with a kid, like having for some reason just felt different. Huh. Yeah. And part of that had to do with, I'm sure um, me crossing 30 and uh, my grandmother getting sick and passing. So I've been thinking a lot more about sure. my, my role mm-hmm. as like I'm carrying the legacy of a generation of a series of generations. And I'm responsible to maintain that, which has been good in my generation patterns and to correct that, which has been less than good or ideal Hmm. that there's like this, I'm not a thermostat in some room that has no prior history, but I'm walking into a place with all this history, all this like magnetic gravitational pull towards a normal and that pull towards a normal has to do with largely what I experienced uh, from my parents. And for me, that was largely positive. Mm-hmm. And sitting and talking with a lot of my close friends who are in like the similar season of life, you know, they have like little kids, like kids like six and under. Mm-hmm. They're in their mid to early 30s. And how rare, like the majority of people, like the main burden they carry probably in the next 10 to 15 years is going to be breaking generational patterns and establishing new ones. Mm. And especially. Yeah. What's interesting to me about that is that will be the main task, even if they don't realize it. Yes. And so what you're trying to do is say, Hey, let's realize it. Let's be aware of some things. Yeah. There's this book that a guy named David Brooks wrote called the second mountain, Mm -hmm. which is all about the second half of life. And he doesn't get into a ton what the first mountain is, but yeah. in, in my view, the first mountain that people have to climb is the purposeful establishment of a, a new course and generational patterns that going, I am taking inventory. So the first act parenting, I'm taking a, a deep and robust, thoughtful, emotional, spiritual inventory of the parenting I received and I'm able to call the wins wins, call the losses losses. I'm able to honor my parents without revering them in some unhealthy way. Mm-hmm. I'm able to um, call the spades spades and call the hearts hearts yep. and celebrate, which is good. And so what that largely means is uh, for some people, celebrating the good your parents did is very difficult because the good that your parents did was largely minor mm. compared to 
the bad they did. Yeah. In other families, being critical of parents is largely difficult because you feel guilty or ashamed or I can't. Yeah, or ungrateful. Yeah, it, it represents ingratitude or yeah. I'm going to look like those people who blast their parents on social media and I don't want to look like that and so I'm going to react to this deal. But every person has a different line to walk in balancing that. Well, and there's it, it is humbling because you also know no matter how good of a job you do as a parent, your kids are going to have to still do the same thing. Absolutely. You know, it's like, it's not like you're going, Oh yeah, I'm on this project to correct generational patterns and my kids will not have to do this work because I did it. It's like, no, they're still gonna, they're still going to need that sort of a thing. And, and here's how I want us to think about this. This is why this episode is about epigenetics and genetics. And so genetics are like the hardwired piece of us that get passed on. Uh, I think if you don't know what genetics are, then I'm sorry. I'm not going to solve that problem for you right now. But epigenetics are like above genetics, epi meaning above or Mm. separate from. And it has to do with how your genetics express themselves. Mm. And a lot of that has to do with conditions uh, of conception and of of rearing. This is why. Okay. This is sort of like where nature meets nurture. Yes. Yeah. A lot of times. And so I'm oversimplifying this here, but here's the idea. It's like when you are in a traumatized state, right, which means your nervous system is overwhelmed and you go into fight, flight, freeze, or or fake death mode. Yeah. Right? It's like this. Uh, you your ep- It alters your epigenetic expression and the way that your body passes on and things through the genetics. Like there's examples of this. So I'm, here's a story I want to read. This is from science.org in the biology section by a guy named Andrew Curry. He says, parents' emotional trauma may change their children's biology. Hmm. So basically what they do in this study, they talk about this, is they expose all these mice to trauma, like dog sounds of dog barking, uh, flashing lights during the day, which would be like basically like interrupting their sleep, um, you know, exposing them to chemical contaminants like poisons Mm -hmm. then they have them reproduce and that doesn't alter their genetic code you know that'd be a random mutation yeah and so uh, but it does change the way the epigenetics are like the genetic the above genetics the phenomes are passed on Mm. to the way that their mice do this and so the mice of the children of the parents who are traumatized the chil- the ch- so, so the, the parents are the second generation of mice. The second generation of mice okay. are more prone to cancers, obesity, heart conditions, memory loss, wow. developmental issues. Wild. And then... So, so just to be clear here, in this experiment, this is talking about uh, trauma that the quote-unquote parents had before they had children. Yes. So it's not necessarily referring to trauma that the parents would have with, yeah. so, you know, so, in the, uh, you know, overlapping with the children's lives. Yes. So then the question is, well, is it because these mice were traumatized that they then were bad parents? Is that why they're these, the kids have are more prone to disease? Hmm. Okay. So then they did this other thing where they only traumatized the males. Okay. And they didn't traumatize the females. And so then they're just getting basically trauma passed on through the, sperm of the male mice separated the male mice. Okay. And the mothers were not traumatized. 
I don't know exactly how my parent, but the same, <laughs> yeah, the same, <laughs> the same, pre- anyway. the same predisposition to disease yeah. was in that second generation. of. Then they repeated this for dozens of times and they found that out to the third and fourth generation, unresolved trauma and loss in the great grandparents leads to predisposition to disease in children. Okay. Of mice. Of mice. Yeah. And so that now you're talking about generational trauma. Yeah. You're talking about how emotional trauma is passed on and makes you predisposed to health conditions or health risks or various things like this. And that has to do with epigenetics. So it's not like they're altering the genetic code through any mutations, but it's actually like the way the genes are expressed has to do with the condition of the parents before and during conception. Mm. And so then basically what this is saying is is undermining some of like the Darwinian um, theories of evolution, which says that species only progress or regress through random genetic mutation. Mm. So they're saying it's actually not through random genetic mutation. It's actually has a lot to do with adaptation that's then passed on to children, both positive. It's maladaptive and adaptive behaviors are passed on to children for generations. So, so I mean, that's just... So I, it dramatically, I it dramatically accelerates... That's wildly interesting. And also, like, I don't even begin to understand how that works. Yeah, which is... Fine. Well, I don't need to, I guess. Yeah, which but. is what we're talking about. But so here's, here's, like, the thrust of all this is the work that we do as individuals to get healthy is just simply not for us. Huh. Yeah, sure. And the work that we don't do to get healthy is simply not just hurting us. Mm. Yeah. Like unresolved trauma and loss, unprocessed difficulty, unaddressed, like physical, emotional, spiritual symptoms. Like these all are all things that, the Lord is saying this will be visited for three or four generations. Like this, like the data yeah. on epigenetics is confirming what God just said is true back in the book of Exodus. And so when I think about breaking generational patterns as being like the first mountain we must climb, the second mountain being processing our decay and, and death and thinking through lasting influence beyond ourselves, that first mountain of breaking and establishing new generational patterns, this is something that is probably the greatest act of love any of us will ever do. Is to become the healthiest, most connected to God, most differentiated, most self-aware version of ourselves we can. Mm. And for most people, like when I really talk to people, that is actually an incredibly difficult journey because a small percentage of people are dealt a really good hand. Yeah, sure. Like a lot of people are, but most people are not. And I think that if we can... A lot of people are what? A lot of people are not dealt a good hand. Yeah. Like if I think about how many people that I know, like really have like two attuned, considerate, um, like appropriately disciplined, present parents who love each other, who love their kids, who love the Lord Jesus. Yeah. Like theologically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, financially, whatever, yeah. all the measures of health, like the percentage of people who have who like that, that's the hand they're dealt Mm -hmm. as parents has got to be close to single digits. Sure. And so it's, I would guess 80% of people, uh, maybe 90% of people, uh, breaking generational patterns is a huge part of what love requires of us. Mm. That if we talk about being like considering loving our neighbors, considering other people, uh, we have to understand 
the the work that requires yeah. and the role that takes. And because it's not just through our uh, parenting, but it's also through our literal physicality that we pass on to our children that there's a big aspect of what this takes, what this looks like. Wow. And so the the work required to break generational patterns, I think, really has to do those two those two big things. Like the first phase is really um, grieving and gratitude being able to express, document, vocalize, and connect over the places, the things you have to grieve and the places you have to be grateful for. One of the exercises I've heard that I think can be really helpful in that process is actually in as you're going through it to call your parent by their first name. Yeah. Instead of saying, you know, my mom saying, well, Carolyn did this. And, um, you know, it, it has a way of doing that differentiation where it's easier to appreciate and also to critique yeah i heard a comedian say one time like talking about my parents by their first name made me realize that uh, they're just two losers who happen to have a kid <laughs> <laughs> that's one way to say it yeah i, I don't would, i don't feel like that about my parents yeah not, not, to be clear <laughs> neither do i sure but you realize like oh like they, well, it humanizes them in a weird way right because when you say mom and dad th- those words inherently have a lot of power yeah um and you know feels like Oh, I couldn't possibly, you know, be anyway. So uh, yeah, I think it's an interesting exercise. Yeah. So phase one's like grief, gratitude, inventory. You got to process that and grieve what needs to be grieved. And like I think about Jesus in John eleven, the time he takes to grieve Lazarus's death. Like we think grief is waste. We think grief is uh, grief is uneconomic. We think that grief um, is interruption. And actually, grief is incredibly productive if you're measuring productivity on like an eternal spiritual scale. Like to grieve that which must be grieved is some of the most like bang for your buck stuff you're going to do because it's actually part of the healing process is to grieve and express gratitude and and thankfulness. And then really that faith. So that's like looking backwards, grief and gratitude. Then there's looking forward piece, which has to do with like imagining and dreaming. Hmm. Like we, we think about little kids who play, they imagine things, you know, sure. and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about playing pretend, but I am a little bit talking about playing pretend with your future. Yeah, what could be? What could be to what be is, able to sure. be able to dream and imagine. And that's I think where some of the power of like fiction and films, uh, not not <laughs> film, you know, films and fiction, and and being around couples or households or uh, literature that mm-hmm. shapes the imagination. Yeah, like, or hearing other people's stories. Yeah, you know, I, I shared. Uh, sometime back in, in a sermon about my dad and about some of the ways that he really changed the trajectory uh, based off of what he had experienced as a kid compared to how he raised me. And I had a number of people tell me, man, that was so helpful because I'm trying to do what he, I'm trying to do what he did. And it, to hear that that's possible. Um, I mean, they didn't use the word imagination, but I could tell that's what's happening is they're getting a fresh imagination for what could be. Because a lot of times we don't have an imagination, which means we're just reacting and doing one foot in front of the other. That's surviving. Like it's a survival mode. One of the aspects of being in survival mode is like the inability to dream or imagine the future. And that's partly because you're trying to conserve energy to just make it through today. But once you're out of a survival reactive mode, which you may or may not need to be in, then imagining and dreaming is a, is a central part of breaking generational patterns. That's part of the work mm. of doing that it's not just deciding to be different but it's having your heart actually captured by a preferred future reality Hmm. that actually energizes 
uh, the disciplines that will actually create difference. Yeah. Because it's not just about doing the right thing and being different, but that serves a vision and a purpose and a desire. Like financial discipline is nothing if it's just an end in of itself, unless it's serving a greater purpose. And so um, having the why and the dream that's energizing the day-to-day process is a big part of that. And, and a, a lot of this really is undermining, I think, like the, the biological determinative Darwinistic perspective that just says genes are passed on and species evolve through random genetic mutation. That's, that's the narrative of the survival of the fittest. And I want to say, like, there's an aspect of that, which this epigenetic process, like these, in the last 10 years, this has been, like, huge controversy in the biological world because it's saying that there's actually, like, agency and will involved. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's more confirming the biblical account that actually we can progress as humans not by just going, well, my genes were the hands, like, that's the cards I were dealt, and I just have to play them. I, and my seeing genes is a limiting factor, whereas going... They may limit me, but the genes I pass on to my kids or like at least like the way the genes express themselves is determined by the work I do and the process that I undergo. Mm-hmm. And so like parenting well affects the gene expression of my kids and mm-hmm. what they pass on to their kids. And so you're always like... So I, I'm imagining someone hearing you, right? You're going to speak of this thing with all these people. They already have their kids. Yeah. So like the epigenetic, that mouse thing already got transferred. Yeah. Uh, is it too late? On one aspect, it is. Like you, the 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 ways that the genes express themselves have been passed on, but it's not too late for the grandkids. Right? It's like a lot of people do their best parenting at, in the season of being grandparents. Mm-hmm. Is like you loving your kids really well actually affects the way that they're going to pass on their genes to their kids like the epigenetic process is still in play even if it's not exactly in play for your exact kids mm-hmm. but part of it is um so even though like the initial passing on moment has happened obviously a long time ago nine and a half months or so before you're born yeah uh, our genes are constantly in flux of how they're expressing themselves and so uh being a, a an attuned present parent is always going to make a difference this is like where the nature nurture thing um, gets into play is you still have a lot of influence, a tremendous amount of influence over the nurture piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's significant about this I'm getting at is you actually have a role in influencing the nature piece, mm. not just the nurture piece. Everyone's known they've had a role in the nurture piece, but yeah. the epigenetic insight is saying you actually have a role in the nature piece too. So oh, like yeah. nurture even affects nature, mm. whereas it's not like there's like this, well, your genes are what they are yeah. and the random genetic mutations will be what they are. Uh, there's actually more agency than even people previously thought about. And so all that being said, coming back to this, I think like the insights and epigenetics and the way that genes express themselves and pass themselves on only gives parents more agency and grandparents more agency in going, I have a bigger role to play than I thought. Yeah. And uh, kids are not blank slates, but they are. there's actually more influence than we'd expect in terms of their emotional, theological, spiritual, relational well-being. So, um, how do I how do I push into this? I mean, do I need a do I need a guide of some sort? Is it like I can just do this grieving and appreciating and and I forget what the other the next steps were? I mean, can I do this by myself? Do I need a therapist? Do I um, 
or is, is there like some tool somewhere? Like I've heard of a genogram, like or genogram. I don't know if you even say it. Like, how do I do it? The, the, like, say I go, man, I'm in. Yeah, I, this sounds really important. Now what? Yeah, what you really need is you you need an attuned person to process with you. Like this is a relational pro. You can't really healthily take relational inventories without some relational inputs, right? And to actually isolate yourself and do this all on your own is actually like reinforcing uh, various like isolationist probably patterns. You know, I didn't get it from my parents. And when I was a child, I learned how to do things on my own and I had to become self-sufficient because yeah. I didn't get it. And so I'm going to keep being self-sufficient and do it on my own. And actually part of breaking that generational pattern is deciding to let yourself be seen, sure. to be vulnerable. And I think that one of the main things that therapists and counselors can do for us is give us a space to possibly experience that. But you should not be on the hook with the therapist forever. Right? Ideally, you'd find an attuned, present, considerate, kind friend who will walk that with you that you're not paying for their services. right? Yeah. And so I think therapists can help give tools and give resources and help process in a way that might jumpstart the process. But ideally, like if I think this is true, like pastors and therapists that if, if everyone had one or two like really attuned, present, considerate friends, uh, a lot of pastors and therapists would be out of a job. And, sure. and just because that's a, a lot. Of yeah, but family. we don't. So in the we meantime. Don't. Yeah, there's there's like that. That's kind of like our last episode. We talked about the process of developing those more connected friendships. Yeah. And you're showing people cards at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are real steps you can take on your own, but I think ultimately if you're going to land in a healthy place, you have to be able to do this with other people Yeah. because you're not going to be able to see your family system or your generational patterns objectively. You're going to see them through your eyes, which are subjective. And it's not that anybody can see them objectively, but you can begin to triangulate a closer to an object objectivity thing when you have a couple other people. Uh, Cause you just been described like, yeah, when I messed up, here's how my dad reacted. And they might go like, wow, my dad did not react like that. He reacted like this. And the two of you go like, well, which type of dad do we want to be? Mm-hmm. What are the pros of that approach? What are the cons of that approach? Sure. Uh, what was the message you received here? What was the message you received there? And I think that's a big uh, part of that is, yeah. is analyzing, not, not necessarily just gossiping and slandering about your parents, but trying to discover uh, the strengths and weaknesses of various approaches and presences and to do that together in a, in a learning community or a mm-hmm. cohort of sorts is I think part of that process. So um, one tool that I think people might even just think about that I've seen over the years is there's a thing called the ACEs test. Yeah. Adverse uh, childhood experience. Yeah. And people could Google that and find it online. And it's an interesting set of 10 questions to really try to get at how many different potentially traumatic experiences have you uh, lived through um, in your childhood? But, but I'm wondering about, so you said, okay, there's, you know, the, the number of people with like the great perfect parents is like single digits. And and I'm guessing um, there's a larger number of people with really terrible parents and terrible and traumatic, like truly traumatic experiences. What would you say to the person who's kind of in the middle? Who's like, you know, I don't know. My parents did their best. They weren't that bad. Like, they're better than a lot of people I know. Could have been a lot worse. Like, I don't know that I have, like, I generational curses. Like, ah, I don't know if I got that. Like, do I really need to do this? Because um, I'd imagine that's actually probably a large, 
a large group of people. There's a big bell curve. Right who would go like, I don't know. Like, well, I think the, I'm, I'm just, the thing I encourage people to do is the goal here is not to label or assign blame to your parents, but the goal is to differentiate or become your own person who's accepting influence from your parents and also deciding in various ways to be, be different. And so I think one of the things that is a helpful exercise is to talk to your parents about their parents. Mm. Like, Hey, when you became a parent, what are some things you saw your mom and dad do that you were like, I want to do this the same. I want to do this different because even just getting like, that's one of the things I assign people doing premarital counseling is yeah. to talk to their parents about their parents. And because you, you begin to see some of their filter on how they thought about and experienced their parents and, and pass that on down to you. And so the goal is not to like keep an inventory, like your, your grief and gratitude chart is not so you can give your parents a grade. Yeah. It's so that you can just be aware of what you're inheriting and be mindful of it. And so I don't want anyone to walk away from this being like, okay, I think my mom was a B and my dad was a B minus. Yeah. I'm going to go tell them why they missed 17 points on that exam. You right. know, sure. you know, dad, you got an 83 and here's your 17 thing. <laughs> but yeah. So, but it's more about uh, the process of me being self-aware of like, what are the, so, but I guess what I'm wondering is like, well, what's at stake though? Like if I don't, oh, so, so it's not about trying to grade them, but say I'm in that, you know, that category I just described, like, yeah, my parents did their best. I don't know. Like it was pretty good, better than a lot of people. If I don't try to push into some of this stuff, what, what's at stake? Yeah. What, what you're not aware of will have power over you. Like yours, your gut sense of normal, you might say it's just my personality and I'm saying it's not. It's a product of what you experience from your parents and how you interpret it. And uh, a lot of that might be good. A lot of that might be bad. But the, the for like human nature in our process, it's like we're being, we're in a river, right? And, and it's going somewhere and we might be in the river believing we're not going anywhere, but the water's taking us somewhere. And I think our family histories are kind of like being in a river. We're not like in a lake, just kind of floating about neutral. Like there's a current. Yeah. And the current that's underneath the surface is our family histories. And for those of us who have pretty good family histories, that's not being mindful. That's not a huge problem. But it might lead to like some type of arrogance. Like, oh, I just have good instincts. Mm. It's like, yeah, you didn't earn those. You didn't give those to yourself. Like, those are a gift and you need to be grateful for them. Like the lack of gratitude leads to arrogance or self-righteousness. Mm. Um, and, or can conversely, you can lead to this like self-hatred shame cycle of all my instincts are bad. I don't know what they're doing. And, and it, you can feel like overly blaming yourself for something that it's like, yeah, those bad instincts were given to you by your parents. And so either way, like the grief and gratitude process actually increases agency. It, it, has a capacity to lower self-righteousness mm. and increase our ability to go, I'm going to, I'm going to do it differently. Um, well, and I think even if it, even if it, you feel like, man, I had a great childhood. It's that it's still worth pushing into. Cause it's like, if you don't know why it's working when it's working, you don't know how to fix it when it's not working. Right. Yeah. So I, I had a friend recently say this to me. Uh, I had pretty terrible parents and I'm definitely giving my kids better than what my parents gave me. But I'm realizing that I'm not even coming close to giving them the best thing I could give them. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that's part of that process mm -hmm. is going, I want to give my kids the best I can give them. Mm -hmm. uh, not just 
be better than my failed parents. Yeah. Like, and yet not feel the pressure to say, and I'm going to give them the best they could ever have possibly had. Yeah. To go, I'm going to move the needle. I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to change the direction and I'm going to try to leave them better off than. Yeah. It's a, a one, was. a one degree change over three generations is ginormous. Yeah, sure. And just being able to celebrate that and see it for what it is, uh, is a part of that. And it's, it's a big enough theme that right smack dab in the 10 commandments, you have this theme introduced of the generational patterns to the third and fourth generation. Yeah. Well, that, that theme is repeated in the place where the Lord discloses himself in Exodus 34. Yeah. Right. He says he's the Lord, the Lord of God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And part of what I take to that is to say God's grace is so super abundant, his love, his steadfast love and faithfulness, it can transcend for thousands of generations yeah. um, and overcome the sin that is there even just for a few generations. Yeah, so I, I just think I, I want folks listening to this, myself included, to just acknowledge the power we have over the generations that come after us. Some of that we'll get to see and sense and experience. Yeah. Some of that, like our epigenetic influence, is under the surface, under the water. Yeah. And we may never totally see that, but the becoming a healthier, more connected person actually has power over our influence beyond just what we see above the surface in our kids or our grandkids. Yeah. Well, Seth, that's really helpful, man. Thank you. Uh, we are expecting similarly penetrating insights when we get together on September 19th for Inside, no, not Inside Redemption Live, King and Culture Live. Yeah. Too many podcasts in my world, my friend. So many podcasts. But, uh, man, yeah, really, thank you. And uh, hope this hope this speaking to those parents goes really well. And um, I'm sure you'll learn some interesting stuff through that. So That's the plan. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for today. Um, thanks for listening. If you find this helpful, share it with somebody you think would be blessed by it. And we'll see you later. Yeah, please RSVP for that event. We don't need you to, but it'd be helpful if you did. Yeah. Sounds great. All right. Bye now. Bye <laughs> now.